Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I just need to start off with an admission that sometimes I'm not so good at life, and I need uh-huh. to give you a warning here, okay? Because uh, I had a nice meeting last week, just a, nothing nothing important with uh, an employee of my college kind of encouraging me to get uh, involved with the Alumni Association and all of that. So I was like, all right, that, that sounds interesting. But her yeah. real point was like, yo, you have to make a LinkedIn page. It's so important. And... <laughs> She gave, you know how I pitch you on like the Marriott points? She gave yeah. me that kind of a pitch about LinkedIn. So I came away from being like, look, whether or not I, I want one, I'm going to have to have one now because she just spent 30 minutes of her life telling me I need one, right? So sure. I, I go and make one this morning. Uh, you know, it asks, hey, do you want to give your Gmail uh, account contacts, you know, access to LinkedIn? I was like, sure, you go ahead and have them, whatever. Then it says, do you want to make connections with everybody in your Gmail LinkedIn? I was like, sure, whatever. You know, I'm just kind of like clicking through randomly. Yeah. Um, so what that has done, Andrew, it has formed pro- professional connections with basically every single person who's ever emailed openfloormail at gmail.com. So we're, <laughs> I am now being bombarded by, I would say, dozens of emails from LinkedIn about various Open Floor Globe members from all these different countries saying, hey, thanks for being my friend on LinkedIn. So guys, no offense, I didn't necessarily mean to do that. I'm great to have your connections, but Andrew, you're probably going to start getting these too because they're coming in hot and heavy. No, that's really good to know. And the reason I laughed as loud as I did when you started in on that story is because literally... 10 minutes ago, before we came on to record this, I was on the phone with another Sports Illustrated employee, Matt Dolliger, an editor at SI, and he said, look, because he knew I was about to go record this with you, he was like, please tell Golliver that the talk of the NBA staff right now is that they are all being inundated with LinkedIn (laughs) requests. (laughs) I was like, I'm not sure how I'm going to work that into the podcast. Andrew, I think I sent out like 15,000 of these. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm getting dentists I haven't been to in 15 years. It was like a real, real (laughs) misstep. I don't think there's an undo, so I'm just going to ride it out. Yeah, well, I'm a little offended. I feel like you and I have probably emailed each other more than anyone over the last two or three years, and I have not gotten a single LinkedIn request from you. So Are you I serious? look forward to that this week. Well, yeah. I'll, add, I'll add you right now. You sign up for a Marriott account, I'll add you on LinkedIn, and we'll be all, <laughs> we'll be all squared away. Hey, the other thing that you've probably been bar- bombarded with, though, and this was a very smooth uh, transition, it's the Luca lovers, man. I'm getting it on a daily basis now, secondhand strays from your Luca takes. And so I've actually had to kind of come up with an official stance uh, because people just tell me you're nuts about Luca. I hate to break it to you, but they're just like, look, Sharp's dead wrong on that. He's going to have to, uh, you know, apologize in a tone at some point. And I said, look, Sharp, above all else, is the grease pig, okay? He will wiggle out of any argument. You don't have to worry about it. Everything that he said about Luca here. He said about James Harden three, four, five years ago, and now he won't stop singing James Harden's praises and saying Luca can't be as good as James Harden, D'Angelo Russell can't be as good as James Harden. And I know uh-huh. you want to open today's podcast with a big conversation about James Harden's MVP chances, and I bet you're going to be a little bit more positive about them this year than you were two years ago. So I'm just saying, guys, everyone down there in Dallas – Everyone in Slovenia, everyone in between. Andrew's going to come around on Luca. He's just going to have to do it on his own time. It's probably going to take about five or six years. 
a couple MVP trophies, but he'll get there. You know what? I have some additional thoughts on Luca. We'll get to them later in the podcast because I do think I need to clarify how exactly I feel. And above all else, I'm a draft nerd, not a grease pig. As far as the grease pig thing, <laughs> I will admit when I'm wrong. If that makes me a grease pig, then I'm sorry, okay? I, I may have overstated my hearted skepticism to some degree at various points over the last three years. And that's also part of the problem is that, like, you and I will have these discussions and we're friends and we're screwing with each other half the time. And then people take these quotes out of context and are like, this is what Andrew Sharp believes or this is what Ben Golliver believes. And it's like, you know what, like half the time it's just you and you and I egging each other on. Um, well, I but, like to believe that there's like, you know, people who like were contributing to the Bible, like they felt the same way now when their little verses are being quoted as scripture and being used to like justify horrendous behavior on earth. Like, don't you think there's people <laughs> who are up there being like, no, 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 you're taking that quote out of context. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not going to compare this to biblical verse, but um, oh, I'm just saying it, people treat it like sharp 316, you know, like Lucas ceiling sucks or whatever. Yes. Like, people and, are, well, are running with it like that. And in some respects, that's a, a high compliment because it is cool that people are paying attention to the podcast and like a 60 second aside where you and I are yelling at each other can become a whole thing where we're inundated with emails all weekend. Um, but first, Ben, I do want to talk a little bit about the MVP race because James Harden and the Rockets play. Giannis Adetokounmpo and the Bucks on Tuesday night. I feel like we are about to hit full-on MVP season, MVP argument season. So let's start with two emails. Um, the first is from Steven, who says, As a Houston fan, it has been all ups and downs this season, and I'm starting to wonder whether my heart can take it or not. But there has been one constant throughout, James Harden. You have to wonder, is there any chance he won't win MVP? And then the second question is from Tony, who is a Bucks fan, and he says, Dear Giannis Inc., some of, some of the numbers that Harden has been putting up lately have got me worried that recency bias is going to give Harden the MVP. How worried should I be? So, Ben... The floor is yours. Where do you stand on the MVP race right now? Well, first thing I stand, Stevens, don't be so melodramatic, all the ups and downs of this season. Like, Houston's in the third seed in the Western Conference, basically where most people expected. Their win total's actually a little bit lower. It was shaky early on, but I don't feel like this has been a very turbulent season. Like, when I went down to visit the Rockets, I think it was in February, uh -huh. They had no Chris Paul, no Clint Capella, and they were completely chill. They're like, yeah, we're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. We're still the biggest threat to Golden State. Who cares, right? So I don't know about these ups and downs. And, you know, when it comes to the narrative thing, like Harden has absolutely carried them, but I don't feel yeah. like it's been some like hurricane storm that like he's magically pulled them through. So I would just well, say that, first of all. Hold, hold on, though. I wouldn't understate some of the adversity that Houston has had to deal with this year. I, I think like they what? have been mostly chill. I experienced the same thing when I spent a week down there earlier oh, so this season. What's the adversity, though? I mean, they're bringing back the same coach, the same roster. They know they're proven. They, you know, they could have a reasonable understanding that Paul was going to miss some stretch of the season. Capella uh -huh. was unexpected. They didn't really have a good fill-in for him. What's the adversity? 
Well, you look at some of the rosters that they're throwing out there, and it's been pretty sketchy. I think like their stability is a credit to Harden's brilliance and the confidence that everyone in that locker room has in James Harden. But, you know, they were rolling with Daniel House for a couple months, and then they had to send him down to the G League because they couldn't really afford to pay him. They've had oh, they threw Austin Rivers in there for a couple months, and he was the solution. Kenneth Fareed. No, like, I mean, but it's been a real patchwork situation look, for about five months straight now. I mean, Daryl's been at the batting cage getting his cuts, right? I mean, he's swinging hard on a lot of <laughs> I different guys. Wonder, do you I mean, think Mar- Michael Carter Williams. This? Uh, I mean, yeah, because he's got James Harden. I think he goes to bed every night happy as heck because he knows but he's got like James a, Harden. That's going to guarantee. It's going to guarantee 50 wins. Look, I mean, he's out there trying to pull all these different levers, but I don't know if just because of the sheer volume of moves they've made, I don't know if we should necessarily equate that with like crazy ups and downs, right? Like they obviously started slow. There's no question about it, but they've been really steady since December, straight on through. Chris Paul has been really solid since he's come back from injury. Clint Capella has been basically Clint Capella. Don't, you know, I know you wouldn't, but we're not going to overlook PJ Tucker and his stabilizing influence on what they've done down there. And James Harden's had great health and availability, right? So, I mean, I don't know. I think there's been crazier up and down seasons in Houston during the James Harden era. That's my point. Yeah, and that's a fair point. And I just think that the reason it hasn't been more turbulent than it has is because of James Harden. I I think if you look at some of the things that have happened around the edges, and even Chris Paul, he's come back and, and played well, but he's had a lot of nights this season where you look out and watch him and see the numbers that he's putting up, and you're just like, whoa, what happened here? I think this is the first time where, like, age has become a real factor. We're starting to see Chris Paul decline. And then you see them, you know, they're counting on like Gerald Green. Gerald Green's taking 10 or 15 shots a night. And then PJ Tucker is great, but PJ Tucker probably shouldn't be playing 40 plus minutes. And there have been a lot of nights this year where they've had to lean on him heavily. And the only reason any of this has worked has been James Harden. And so I guess my point is that as far as the MVP is concerned, he has a really, really good case and is not easily dismissed. Of course, he has a really good case. I And I agree that he's been the main stabilizing factor. I think anybody would be nuts to dismiss that. Um, I just think that like, it, it's not like they're stuck in the seven, eight battle, right? Oh, are we going to make the playoffs? Like James has to do all this stuff. Like their formula has, has been established so clearly. They've perfected it in recent years Harden has taken his game to another level it just hasn't been that dramatic I mean if you want to like okay yeah the seventh eighth ninth guys are, are rotating constantly that's fine but like their jobs aren't really that difficult they stand in the corner and shoot threes right like come on yeah I mean Harden had 60 the other night it's pretty dramatic as far well, as I'm concerned okay well I'm done nitpicking that one little point which was probably not the best way to lead Harden's okay. case is incredible if you look at his per game stats he's 36 6 and 7 right now that line has never been done before in NBA history not yeah. Mike not Wilt not Kobe uh, not Westbrook nobody uh, 36 points per game is one of those like hallowed scoring averages that basically never gets touched. And the way he's playing recently, like he is finishing strong 57 and 61 in, in consecutive games is absolutely no joke. He's going to be above that 36 point threshold. And I think there's going to be a lot of voters who say this is the most points anybody's scored since Michael Jordan in 1987. 
mm-hmm. automatic MVP vote. He just gets it no matter what. Houston's a three seed. Uh, they're going to be above 50 wins. He's the reason why. I think for some people, that's going to be very, very compelling. Honestly, I wouldn't blame them. If you're talking about who's had the biggest impact on his team's offense this season, overall yeah. impact, there's no question it's James Harden. But I don't think I'm not sure if it's a case of recency bias because, like I said, Harden's been good for a lot of months now. This is not just about, like, one incredible scoring week shifting the narrative, right? Like, he has had a very steady case, especially since December. I just think Giannis has a really, really, really strong case, too. And the one point I want to put out there on Giannis's case, it's similar to an argument I made uh, in, in favor of Steph Curry versus Harden a few years ago in the MVP race. When yep. your team is winning by a lot, when they're blowing teams out night after night after night after night, that will come at the expense of your stats, right? That will come at yeah. the expense of your minutes. You're not playing. You're not being forced to play 37 minutes per game like Harden is uh, down in Houston. You should not get penalized, and your opponent should not get bonus points for the struggle, right? If you're winning games easily, that's better than winning games more difficult. And I think that's one of the arguments in Giannis's favor. Not only does he have incredible statistics across you know every chart, but Milwaukee from start to finish this year has been the most dominant and consistent team on the court. And that counts for a lot in my book. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because this is a near-perfect inversion of the 2016 debate between Harden and Westbrook, except that now Harden has switched places and he's making the case that Westbrook stands had to make two years ago. And really, both sides of the debate have stronger cases than either Russ or Harden did in 2016 because I like on Giannis's side, the Bucks are better than that that Rockets team was. And... Um, and Harden's side, you know, the Houston offense is the second best offense in the league and has been lights out for four or five months now with Harden playing this way. And Harden also had no choice but to put up these numbers. Like you talked about 36, 7, and 6 or whatever his numbers are on the year. But even if you limit it to since the time that Chris Paul went out with that hamstring injury in late December. He's averaging close to 40 a game. It's like 39 and a half, seven rebounds, seven assists. And they have needed like every bucket along the way. And they started that stretch outside the playoffs in the West and are now the third seed. So I'm kind of with you. And it's sort of a meek take right now. I, I feel bad about it. But like, Anybody who feels that Harden is the MVP isn't wrong because his case is so good. I can't really argue with it. And he's going out and having these like lights out games where he has 60, but the the Rockets, it's not stat padding. Like the Rockets need him yeah. to do that to have a chance against the Spurs. But it is kind of a perverted form of basketball. And what I would say is despite everything you just said about Harden, Giannis mm-hmm. has more win shares, barely. He has a better PER, barely. He's right there, neck and neck, uh, in real plus minus. And they're playing like a, a more traditional style in terms of building around your superstar player. Yep. And I'm not sure, like, I think they've had better structure, better cohesion, definitely better health. You can make an argument Harden's got better teammates, you know, at least two, three, four. Really? Th- Chris Paul is still really good. I understand he's kind of the spider meme uh, right now or Spider-Man meme right now with LeBron where they're pointing at each other and they both can't turn the corner. <laughs> and it's it's depressing to watch on a nightly basis. You know, these guys, yeah. I mean, the, the number of times LeBron's falling to the court during games is starting to get me a little bit concerned. And Chris Paul has had some similar issues kind of getting to the basket. But 
He's still really good. Um, like I said earlier, Tucker, I mean, Clint Capello is one of the most underrated players in the league. I know he missed some time, but he's really, really good. Um, and you don't have the kinds of questions that you've had about Brooke Lopez. Is he going to work in the playoffs? How's it going to play out matchup wise with Clint Capella? Right. He's going to be there on the court, whether they're, you know, playing Golden State or, or anybody else. So, uh, you know, for the supporting cast argument, I think you can make an argument that uh, Giannis has less help, even though he's got better structure around him. And his numbers are right there, even though they're different types of numbers. When you look at the advanced stats, very similar, if not better than Harden. And that's why if I was a Bucks fan, I'm looking at, you know, their record, Giannis's importance to their team, both offensively and defensively, and his advanced stats, I would feel robbed if Harden was the MVP. Yeah. And I think that no matter what, this is the thing is like, I don't blame somebody's Rockets feeling robbed. Fans. Yeah, somebody's <laughs> going to feel robbed and somebody is going to be justified in feeling that way. You know, if Rockets fans are pissed off and feel like James Harden is getting robbed of an MVP, I won't be mad at them. And uh, and the same is true for Bucks fans. Wait, you're he, not one of these you're not one of these co-MVP guys, are you? Like give everybody no, a trophy. I, okay. I feel bad. I feel bad striking this kind of neutral tone, but um but I, I understand where both sides of the of the argument are coming from. The well, let me ask you though, does Harden winning last year work against him or work for him? You know, because for him the argument would be look, he was the MVP last year, and he's definitely been better and more important to his team this year. But the you know, it could work against him where people are saying, Look, he's already got one, it's Giannis's turn. Which which one of those do you think is gonna have more sway or will they not matter? Um, I think it will matter, and I don't know if that's necessarily why Harden won't win, though. I think people talk about a Harden bias. Like I see Rockets fans talking about it all the time, and this is a bias against Harden that they're referencing. And I do think some of that's real. I've certainly been guilty of it in the past. I've admitted that I don't love watching him play. But I also think that it's fair to say that he's talked about differently because he does rely heavily on officiating, and we just haven't seen this work at that level in the playoffs. You know, we haven't seen him play MVP level basketball in the playoffs, and it's been seven or eight years now. And there's context you can bring up, but it just hasn't happened. And I think sometimes people look at this as gimmicky, and whether that's fair or not, it's it's. I wouldn't say it's entirely crazy to ask the question, and um, and I think that would work against Harden more than you know, the, the idea that he won last year and, and he's not good enough to reward him again. So the counter there, the Houston fans would scream is, well, Giannis has never won anything. Harden's won a lot more in the playoffs than Giannis ever had. And if this playoff argument was counting against Harden when he's going head to head against Steph a couple of years ago, okay, that kind of makes sense. If he's going against a guy who's, you know, still a rising star, still hoping to make, you know, his first real run into the postseason, should that actually favor Harden because he has done more? What do you think? Yeah, no, and I think that's a fair counter. I just think it's more about people's ambivalence towards Harden, and the that ambivalence originates. Yeah. There's, from- there's really no Harden Inc. is what you're trying to say. Like, there's exactly. the diehard, like the Harden swarm. It's very similar to KD. You know, like I'm the only <laughs> remaining member of KD's like <laughs> fan club. Like I'm the only yeah. person who will go to bat for him publicly. Harden has made some level of progress getting into the intelligentsia, getting people to kind of step up for him and and you know praise his uh, you know praise his style of play, his creativity, his innovation. 
but he doesn't really win the hearts and minds. It's just right. a fact, right? And and KD suffered from the same thing. Some guys do, some guys don't. And Harden's just on the category where he doesn't. And by the way, I think that would change very, very quickly if he goes out and plays out of his mind, even in a, a Warriors loss. If they take the Warriors to six or seven and Harden averages 35 or 40 for the series and leaves it all on the court and basically plays the way he's been playing for the last six months, people are going to look back and say, holy shit, this guy is really, really special and might be the best player in the league. He Man. just needs to do that before we get there. I can't wait till you're growing a beard. So all he's got to do is score. <laughs> if he scores 45 for the series against Golden State, you're going to grow a beard. Is that excuse what's happening? Excuse me. Excuse me. I said 35. I'm not uh, trying to give him some impossible task <laughs> okay. here. But um, yeah, just don't go into the playoffs and shoot 30% again. Um, the Here's the thing. The flip side is with Giannis. I do think we just need to be very clear Milwaukee has the best net rating in the league, the fifth best offense, the best defense by a lot, and a lot of that is Giannis's presence on defense, and the best record in the NBA. And so this is why when you talk about like his case versus Harden's case two years ago, his case is much stronger. And um, Giannis's on-offs individually are preposterous, um, and it like he's putting up 27, 12 and a half, and six assists on 58% shooting. And he's doing it in 33 or 34 minutes a game. And that's why, like, more than anything where I do kind of, I don't know, I diverge with some of the Harden love just because I think we need to factor in the opportunities that Harden has versus Giannis finishing games in three quarters and then basically kind of coasting. Like, I think if we wanted to see Giannis put up 34 and 16 and eight assists, like, it wouldn't be hard for him to do that. Yeah, I, I think you might have understated their offensive efficiency a little bit. Last time I checked, they were third, and it was like a percentage point behind Houston. So, like, they're neck and neck. And, again, they're maintaining that while Giannis is on the bench for basically a quarter of every single game. It almost goes back a little bit to the argument about, like, what's the right way to play that I think wound up getting Steve Nash's MVPs, right? Like, uh -huh. does Giannis fall into that category a little bit where it's like, look, if you gave him a 40 usage, if you said Giannis – Go out there and, you know, try to dunk every single possession, dribble the ball for 20 seconds if you want to, take 25 shots like Harden does, you know, get to the foul line 16 times a game, play you 37 minutes. Like, he would have completely insane numbers too, right? But would that exactly. be better for the team? I think that's sort of one of the fundamental questions here. And the way that Milwaukee has used him in terms of balancing uh, his own scoring with his improved playmaking has been for the greater good. And that's, you know, the same thing can basically be said for Harden. Like he does almost all of their playmaking too because the ball's just always in his hands. But mm -hmm. I, I do think there's a question underlying that is, you know, which way is the right way? Is one better than the other? Is one uh, more representative of what we're looking for, like the heart and the soul of basketball than the other? And that should not be the deciding factor for the MVP vote. Uh, yeah. But I do, I do think it's an argument in favor of Giannis. Yeah, and I think that Giannis's season is pretty close to what Steph Curry was doing two years ago, where the numbers are insane, but if anything, they don't tell the full story because the Bucks are just blowing people off the court, in part because Giannis is that dominant. And, and that will probably ultimately be the tiebreaker for me. I'm like currently undecided, and anyone who's listened to this podcast for the last six or seven months can probably listen to us have this discussion and be like, get the fuck out of here. You guys are both voting for Giannis. 
But uh, I uh, I'm not genuinely... voting because I don't get a vote. I'm gonna sit in the corner, kind of crying, and you know, closing my eyes and hoping it, <laughs> hoping people use very smart judgment and thoughtful, considered uh, research to make their determinations. Um, yeah, I think well, it's uh, both guys have strong cases, man. Like, and I think Harden's season would win MVP a lot of years. Giannis's season would win MVP a lot of years. I also think it's kind of hilarious that we can legitimately kind of comp Giannis and his impact to Steph Curry, Steve Nash, Shaquille O'Neal, like all <laughs> rolled into one. I mean, that says something about who he has, is as a player too, you know, like the the range of players where, you know, he can say, hey, he dominates down low like this guy. He has this kind of an impact, like like a, uh, you know, two-time MVP point guard on his team's offense. He plays the right way, like another two-time MVP point guard. I mean, it's it's pretty stunning. Yeah, and and would you agree as we head down the home stretch here that it's still something of an open question? And I'm not saying that Bucks Hawks or no, sorry Bucks Rockets Tuesday night should decide anything, but um, over the the final month of the season, like or I guess a couple weeks here now, like I I still want to see how things shake out and how both of these guys finish before I make a call. There's no question it's not fully resolved yet. I think Milwaukee's win total is one of the biggest variables, right? Like how high can they push that thing and how much higher is it than everybody else? I think that lazy voters look at points per game and wins, right? Mm -hmm. So if Harden's clearly going to be the points per game leader, you know, if Milwaukee's getting above 60 wins and they're the only team that gets up there, I think that kind of counteracts maybe the scoring thing. Um, But yeah, of course it's open. I mean, like we just have been saying for the last 20 minutes, if it wasn't open, we wouldn't be able to talk about this for 20 straight minutes, Andrew. It and, would have just been over 15 minutes ago. And by the way, that's a credit to Harden kind of kicking things up a notch over the last few weeks because I would not have called it open a couple weeks ago, but Harden has just been that good. And again, Houston has needed it. Um, so credit to him. I do think it's also cool that Giannis has never really uh, shown any, like he doesn't care about MVP this year and hasn't been playing that way and is no. just playing for something bigger, which is part of why I love Giannis. Yeah, so, Giannis um, cares about not caring for MVP. Like exactly. he wants to make it very clear. And honestly, like how often do we see guys go from not really MVP candidate all the way to winning it, right? Yep. Like, I think that's another thing that we should look at in favor of Harden too, because he had to kind of pay his dues in that in that race, you know, getting second, you know, being close, and then finally winning it. I mean, to go from completely off the radar to winning it doesn't happen very often. And uh, again, it would be a big testament to you know Coach Bud, their system, everything else around him that's gone so well for Giannis. But it would also be unusual, and that could be one more thing, just like the the household name factor in favor of Harden. Well, and as far as our Giannis myth-making is concerned, there's no truer sign of greatness than people starting to take you for granted. And in the same way that LeBron was taken for granted for a lot of years, I mean, I think that would be kind of its own uh, victory for Giannis to have a bunch of people looking at him and being like, okay, so what? So 30, 12, and 8? Like, who gives a shit? Um <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, either 60 way, wins. <laughs> yeah, 60 wins, whatever. I'm, wake me up when you win a title. Um, I will say one other thought that I had a while back when you were talking with the Chris Paul thing. It is really interesting just watching him now, watching him this year. The LeBron parallel is a good one. Um, but it's crazy to me because he does look mostly like the same player. He's fallen off athletically maybe 10 or 15%. 
And it's crazy that the margins for him are so slim that taking even a half step back and suddenly his shooting isn't nearly what it was a, a year or two ago. Okay, you know, shooting in the mid-range off the dribble, like he just hasn't been the same guy in that department. And I think everywhere else he's close to what he was. Um, but it, it's wild just how quickly the slightest drop can can change a guy's entire game. Yeah, and I mean, he's been dropping gradually for a while, right? So it's like one of those things where you're kind of like slipping on the ice and then, you know, finally the ice breaks. I yeah. think he, he might be in that kind of a situation. And again, you know, same thing goes for what I'm watching from LeBron here uh, night after night. Um, hey, all right. know, if I, as the PR wing of Giannis Inc., though, I, I do have one other idea. Okay. If I were them, first of all, this is going to be more, you know, uh, advice for the Milwaukee Bucks, unsolicited advice. You guys want Giannis to win MVP, period. You should be campaigning harder for Giannis to win than any other organization has ever campaigned for a player to win MVP, ever. It's in your own personal best interest this year. It's in your long-term best interest. It's in your best interest to re-sign Giannis. You should be pulling out all the stops, right? Like I want helicopters and like air, you know, like <laughs> the Goodyear blimp, you know, flying over games with Giannis banners and all that stuff. But in all seriousness, what they need to do is they need to have sort of the tell-all behind-the-scenes feature lined up with somebody who can really write it. I'll nominate myself because I think I do an okay job with it. <laughs> but maybe there's other writers out there that would take on this task. What they really need to do is to drill into just how bad it was under Jason Kidd, just how ugly it got. You know, all, we need all the nitty gritty details about his preparation, about you know why they struggled so much. How come they you know, they had to fire Kidd? We need all of those details out in the open, right? And then we yeah. need to be casting Giannis as the savior that pulled this franchise through that dark time and only became stronger because of that, those trials and tribulations. That's the story that we need to run like 72 hours before voting uh, ballots are due. What, what do you think, Andrew? Um, I'm with you, and I'm glad you made that point because I think that's another thing that I've seen as we kind of like inch closer toward this full-blown league-wide argument between Giannis and Harden. I've seen a number of people mention that Giannis has benefited a lot from Coach Bud and the emergence of Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe. Which obviously is true. I think the Bucks as a team are so much better off than they were a year ago because of all those factors and because of the signing of Brooke Lopez and some of the things they've done around the edges. Even so, when you take Giannis off the floor, that team is pretty ordinary, and that's been true all year long. He is a huge, huge, huge difference maker for them, and that should not be lost as we start to celebrate coach bud and some of the other things that have happened in milwaukee like Giannis is still the beginning and end of the story for the bucks how many wins do you think they'd have honestly if they just didn't have Giannis this year it's hard to say because he's enjoyed such great health yeah but if if Giannis was just not on the team is that a 28 win team 30 win um, team I mean, it, they're not good. <laughs> like, I mean, you could ask Middleton to step up. I mean, I love Middleton. You know that. Like, yeah, that's not going to work. You could ask Bledsoe to step up. He'll get numbers. That's not going to translate to wins. Lopez can't really do much more than he's done, and he would take a step back without Giannis because his shot quality is going to go way down. Like, Giannis could definitely be w worth 30 wins to them. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's a LeBron-like impact back on those Cavaliers teams that were so terrible. Uh, and, and look, again, you could make a, the same argument for James Harden, right? right. Um, 
But uh, I don't know. I, I think that their season, it's almost hilarious to think about what they would look like without Giannis. Yeah, and, and people need to remember that. Just because the rest of the Bucks look good, Giannis is a huge part of the reason they look good. So with that, I'm sure we'll revisit this in a couple weeks, um, and maybe I'll grease pig it up and start standing yeah, for James Harden. But You'll, you'll um, change your mind a few more times? Yeah, I I have to say, I've changed, like, I see some of these Harden games, and I'm like, whoa, like maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. And I, I loved my week in Houston. So Okay, well, um, let me ask you. If you had to vote today, who do you vote for? A ballot's due today. Gone to your head. Um, I know it's a tough one, uh, but what do you, what do you think? I default to Giannis in part oh. because I think his numbers are a little bit depressed because he's been so effective while he's been on the floor. And that, to me, like I think he would be even more out of this world in a, in a different context where the Bucks needed more from him. But um, it's really close. It's like, honestly, like 53% versus 47% of my brain is, is with Giannis. Um, and I love how this is coming down to like the real D'Antoni versus cheese curd D'Antoni. You know, it's like which coach is managing their, their <laughs> superstar <curd> better. <laughs> yep, there you go. Uh, shifting gears, though, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Heat Wizards on Saturday night. So from the top of the league to the bottom of the league, Usman says is well, just as what before we get to the question your your washington wizards are aren't they officially eliminated yet or it's very like they're less than one percent on the playoff odds or 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 Um, i think uh didn't ted wave the white flag did i see that i i think he effectively did their magic number for elimination so i guess that's the tragic (laughs) number not very magical (laughs) yeah i think their number is one so they're very close to being officially eliminated um it's a little embarrassing for the Eastern Conference and maybe just the integrity of the NBA that it's taken this long for the Wizards to be officially out of the playoffs. But um, but yeah, they're, they're getting there. Do you have any statement on that? I mean, I know it's been a long time coming here. It's not exactly a surprise. But, you know, when you went to that game and you were realizing that, you know, the, the lottery future sank in. I mean, did you have any thoughts going on in your head there? I, I'm just poking and prodding just to see how tender this all is. Yeah, try to um, take us back to whiz therapy. No, I didn't. I honestly don't really have much emotion around this season anymore. I'm <laughs> dead I'm inside. Kind of all set. Yeah, I'm dead inside. I'm emotionally divorced from whatever this team is at this point, and we'll revisit things this summer. Look, they do have a sneaky okay shot at zion i think they have like a 12 percent chance right now so. <laughs> that's what i was looking for here we go the delusion Who is back no yeah i'm starting to think about it um but uzman says is justice winslow still a bust and justice winslow didn't play saturday night but i do think we should recognize how solid he has been for most of the season because like the justice winslow story of the last couple years has been he plays well for about two weeks. People start talking about him turning the corner, and then he kind of falls off a cliff again, and you're like, oh, man, because everybody wants Justice Winslow to be good, and this is the first year I think he has been legitimately good for most of the season. Yeah, he's another one of these Duke guys who's just fun to argue about. Remember I was mentioning that with R.J. Barrett on last week's episode? You got Oak Four, uh, yeah. you got Jabari Parker, like – Justice, you're right. People want him to succeed, but the people who are skeptical of who he was coming in, 
Like they had pretty good reason to feel validated about that skepticism for the first couple of years. And I didn't see a lot of people piling on him because he seems like a nice guy. He's not exactly like he's playing on this like, you know, super polarizing team down there in Miami. But I mean, his weaknesses were crippling those first couple of years. And his improvement has come in areas that I just didn't see as somebody who was sort of pro justice kind of the whole way. I like that pick for them. Um, I thought he maybe even could have gone higher in that draft. Um, like the point justice stuff, the playmaking, trying to step into that role, learning how to become that knockdown shooter, which I just didn't think he was ever going to get. Um, and, and he's doing it on, you know, okay volume right now. It just unforeseen developments that are very helpful for a coach, and I'm sure uh, you know it makes it a lot easier to construct lineups around him or including him uh, down there in Miami. So um, you know, I think it's kind of like an attaboy situation. Like he's fine, <laughs> he's good. Like congratulations, I'm I'm glad you've made these steps. I don't see stardom in his future, uh, but he has altered his trajectory as a player in a way that Michael Kidd Gilchrist never did. And that was another guy who I loved. And obviously injuries intervened there, but it wasn't just injuries, right? Like his game just kind of stalled out. He didn't adapt. He didn't expand his offensive repertoire. And that was just kind of that. And it's like, okay, well now you're basically a bust. Like, you know, tough luck. Sorry, Charlotte. And I think justice has done a nice job of pulling himself out of that conversation and, you know, look going forward, you know, fairly bright future. He's still really young. Yeah, well, Justice was in that category of, like, if he ever gets a jump shot players. And then after two years of watching him, it was like, I don't think he's ever going to get a jump shot. And we should all just make peace with that. And then he started to come around. And um, and you're right. Like, the playmaking thing was another one where you would watch his games the first few years and be like, this guy's a kind of a sneaky, good playmaker. But nobody really meant it. And then suddenly he's become kind of, like, point justice and is is really doing it every night or has been for a lot of this year so um it's encouraging i a couple other notes i had from watching the heat saturday night is number one bam Adebayo is just awesome and i've talked about him on the podcast in the past this season but like that guy his playmaking is also sneaky great and he's everything you would want from a rim runner he can switch on defense like I just love that dude's game. No, I hear you. Uh, isn't Hassan Whiteside a free agent this summer? I'm pretty sure he's got the player option. Uh, so maybe he picks it up because it's so gigantic. Yeah. But I, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about like Lakers center targets, and I was trying to construct like the worst reality. Can you imagine if the Lakers, who are going to have a huge hole at center because they don't have Zubak and Chandler's done, JaVale McGee, oh, man. and that's not really the answer. Can you imagine if Magic threw a, a huge bag at Hassan Whiteside? How funny that would be. <laughs> he might do it too. <sighs> I, if the Lakers can't get a real star in there, I do hope that they are able to show a little bit of restraint and not go after <laughs> the white side class of free agents. Because <laughs> people are talking about like, well, maybe they just throw a lot of money at Boogie. And like, I don't know if I want to see them try to make the Boogie LeBron era work either. I don't know. Um, just bring everyone back if you're not going to be able to build a legitimate good team. Well, so the buzz around Miami is if they get the eighth seed, you know, with some of these young players that you're starting to hype up here, could they throw a scare into Milwaukee? Do you see that or no? No, I I don't see that. In part because Milwaukee has shredded them whenever they've played. And so I I love the heat. Um, I kind of can't figure out why they're not a better team because they have a lot of pieces that I like. They play really, really hard. And yet they're kind of clinging to the eighth seed here. 
So I, they've had some injuries, to be fair, but it just um, I don't see it as far as like may, maybe they'll steal a game from the Bucks, but that's about it. Cool. So why are we talking about them? <laughs> All right. no, no, no disrespect, but they're in my range, Andrew. What do I say? Six to eight. And we can expand that to nine in the Eastern Conference. I'm sure you saw that email, by the way, come in that says if Boston was in the Western Conference with their current record, they would actually be the ninth seed in the Western Conference right now. That must have shook you to your core, right? It didn't really. I, I don't really like the bottom of the West is not that great anyways so if you're arguing that the spurs are better in a vacuum than that celtics team like you're lying i don't know what well, you're watching <laughs> like, they sure. just beat them head to head in boston a couple I days ago that. it wasn't even I, close i mean lamarcus okay, aldridge cool. is out there looking like a you know a real hall of famer yeah which of those teams do you trust more in a playoff setting uh anyone out of the western conference to be honest <laughs> okay, I, sure. I think there's there's two good teams in the east i've said this over and over i mean look if they couldn't even make the playoffs in the Western Conference, how am I going to trust them in a playoff series? That's my point. Okay. Well, I, I my contention is that they would find a way to make the playoffs in the West. And uh, my contention is that they're a better team than a number of playoff teams in the West. I would probably trust the Celtics in the playoffs more than the second-seeded Nuggets. But you don't see me sitting here flying my Eastern Conference flag and trying to bring up conference imbalance on every single podcast. We get well, emails every week about this shit. Like you, you just told just me you were gonna good. you told me you were gonna write about it. I'm still waiting for the column and I just think these are important stats and factoids to put in your column. That's all. All right. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think the top of the East remains better than the top of the West. And um, it's, uh, it's H- fine. Houston would win the East. No problem. Uh, Denver, a they're of- a little shaky. I'll give you I'll, I'll give you the skepticism on Denver. But I think Portland could win the East, too, potentially. Maybe. I think Portland is really, really sneaky this year. I kind of like their mix a lot better than I'd like them last year, in, in large part because... Nurkic has become just a monster this season. He's in better shape. He's dunking everything. And um, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to get too excited because this time last year we were getting pretty excited about the Blazers and that did not end well. But um, I like I like their mix. Um, and look, the West is slightly better than the East. I'm not sitting here saying they're not. But let's not overstate it and don't throw these stats at me like, oh, the Celtics wouldn't even be a playoff team in the West. Like, that's ultimately meaningless because the Celtics are still better than a lot of playoff teams in the West. So like if they're screwed up in March, it doesn't really matter. So uh, I forgot to mention this earlier with the Harden conversation, but I, I, I concocted this like peak Harden scenario where he is able to finally get over the hump and beat the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, but then somehow loses in the finals. Could you picture that happening? Oh, boy. That would be really depressing but of course i could picture that happening i I think (laughs) seriously i mean if houston makes the finals they're not a shoe-in against anyone who comes out of the east the team coming out of the east is going to be really really tough to beat for any non-warriors team can't you just see him like breaking down in tears at the press the press conference you know finally showing the emotion letting everybody in after a game six triumph over the golden state warriors he says i spent the last four years obsessed with beating golden state i finally got over the hump i'm feeling like jordan and the pistons in the late 80s this is so great 
And then, you know, next thing they know, they get like Milwaukee in the finals and go out in five and he's shooting 30%. Like, I'm not predicting that's what's going to happen. I just think that's a scenario we should at least discuss. Yeah. Well, and again, it's the way he goes down that matters most to me. If he empties the clip and has a great series, but they still lose, people will show Harden the love he deserves. But as the, my final two thoughts on that Heat Wizards game, number one, the... Uh, Dwayne Wade experience is just wild to me. Like the the Wizards games have been dead all year long. And then Wade shows up and the entire stadium was full for Dwayne Wade, first of all. And second of all, he looked really old through most of the first half. Um, And then I think it was a a fan was courtside and was talking trash to him and kind of like got him going a little bit and he finished the game almost by himself. He, he, he iced the game with, I think 11 or 12 fourth quarter points and was just hitting those classic mid range fadeaways. And it was just like the most masterful classic D Wade performance where he's just dominating you out of spite. And um, I kind of can't believe that he's still doing this. Yeah, and I think that his recent statement was that he wanted to kind of go out on top or he wanted to go out with a flourish and not fade away. And I think he's succeeded in that, at least on his own terms, right? And so you like to see that. Um, You know, Kevin Durant made a comment recently of like, hey, everybody's, you know, pushing, you know, Dirk Nowitzki out the door. He hasn't even said if he's retiring yet. And you want all these guys to go out on their own terms, to play basketball for as long as it's meaningful to them and as long as they can contribute and as long as they're happy. Uh, And I think, you know, Dwayne has really had one of the greatest retirement tours uh, in NBA history. It's wild. (laughs) The jersey collection alone has been incredible. Um, But I also think, like, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia going on here. There's a lot of emotions. I mean, this is still a team that's under 500 that you just said doesn't have a, a chance in the first round. And so it's a good story for late March when there's nothing else to do, you know, sports wise in Washington. Yeah. Um, but I mean, come on, like, well, let's, let's keep it in its context. You know, I just am really impressed by his ability to rise to the occasion even now. And I think like that's, we'll talk more about Wade when he actually retires, but I just will remember him as one of the more clutch basketball players I have ever seen. Um, and I think it's a really cool legacy that has been underscored this year where he'll have these moments where you're like, all right, it's it's good that you're retiring. And then 20 minutes later, he'll be hitting a big shot for a team that actually needs it. Um, and then the other, the other point I had, when we talk about the wizard season being dead, there were like a number of loud, let's go heat chants during the game Saturday night. And yet, Perfect. Um, which was really depressing and kind of surreal. But then, uh, I will say it was heartening to realize that the Wizards crowd still absolutely hates Kelly Olenek. And there was a near fight at one point that involved (laughs) the most ridiculous flop of the NBA season. You should look it up on Twitter if you haven't. Like Thomas Bryant was kind of nudged. Oh, I saw it. Did you see it? Yeah, he looked like kids when they're in sleeping bags and like trying to like spin along the ground in the sleeping bags. (laughs) Isn't that like a isn't that a race of some sort? Dude, it was a full on barrel roll that Thomas Bryant pulled off, and I was just at first I I missed the play in real time, so I was like, "What the hell just happened?" And then I saw it, and I was like, "That's probably the most disgraceful flop I've ever seen." Um, so anyone out there, if you want to brighten up your day with a 15 second video, 
look up Thomas Bryant's flop and um and yeah, also last year the whole season came down to John Wall arguing with Gortat on the bench and Beal had his hands uh, in in the towel just like he couldn't take it anymore that was the defining moment of Washington season yeah. I think Thomas Bryant rolling around on the ground for no reason <laughs> is the defining moment of the 2019 Wizards what do you yeah. think yeah and me taking solace and booing Kelly Olynyk after all these years by the way in classic Wizards fashion that game was sealed by a Kelly Olynyk dunk, and it was just like, "Wow, my soul is broken." Ouch. This is just the way the world works. <laughs> um, hey, but, you um, mentioned uh, Wade's legacy a minute ago, and I was just thinking, like, okay, how do I really m- remember Wade? And I think, unfortunately, I wasn't covering the league for his first title, uh-huh. um, and obviously, they only came to Portland a couple times a year, so I didn't get to see him a ton in person. I think my best memories of Wade are obviously the back-to-back title years when Miami just felt unfair when they were really clicking, right? Like, especially in that Oklahoma City series, it just was, like, unfair. It's like, oh, my God, the athleticism. Obviously, there's that famous alley-oop photo that everybody likes to go to where Wade's got his hands up and LeBron's finishing it. Um, But I wonder if we if the more time that passes if we'll start to reappreciate that group a little bit more because right now I'm almost in this mode where, like, Golden State came by – and they did the big four immediately after uh, Miami's big three, and they did it mm-hmm. so much better, and they smashed all their records, and they were so much more dominant, and the style of play was just uh, you know, even more effortless, and they're you know racking up 73 wins and all of that. Yep. But I wonder if that stepped on them a little bit. Like in much the same way as you know, I love that Spurs title team 2014. I always talk about that as being my favorite team, but they've been forgotten by history because of the Warriors. Uh, or at least overshadowed because of the Warriors. I wonder if there's going to be a renaissance at some point down the road once we completely clear the Warriors dynasty, where it's like, man, those teams like right before Golden State blew up were incredible. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I kind of hope that we do hit that point. And and one of the coolest parts of that era was that as incredible as those big three guys were and and as foregone a conclusion as that team seemed to be, once the game started, they were actually pushed. I mean, they were pushed in the Eastern Conference and they were pushed in the finals. Like that Thunder series, as good as LeBron was and as good, and Wade had a couple huge games in that series too, each of those games was really, really close. And like it was one of the closer five game series I can ever remember. And um, as far as I'm concerned, like that's a cooler, like those titles that they won were more fulfilling than some of the Golden State titles have been. And it's not a shot at Golden State. It just is like the experience of watching them kind of go to the brink and then come through was a little bit cooler. And you forget at the beginning, like the first title run that they had, Chris Bosh went down. I think he had like a dislocated shoulder and he missed two or three playoff rounds and they were starting like Ronnie Turioff and Joel Anthony. And like they didn't have the overwhelming talent advantage that the Warriors have had. And so to watch them kind of try to patch things together and make it work anyway was really cool. And again, Wade had a couple just like huge performances in, in those playoff runs. That was a, a really big part of why it all worked. Yeah, you're a conflict connoisseur. I'm the win connoisseur. You know, I like the greatness for greatness's sake, regardless of whether it leaves their foes just kind uh-huh. of laid waste. And, <laughs> and you like you like the real drama. You know, you want the last second shots and the close games and the back and forth and the tug of war and the unpredictability. That's what you favor. And 
um, you know, in that case, when you're looking at those Heat teams, I mean, the, the Spurs series uh, is an all-timer, you know, yeah. right up there with basically any other series in terms of how the last couple of games played out. I mean, it's totally surreal to go back and watch those games. But uh, Well, and additionally, the one question I have with Wade's legacy, and it's something that we rarely really talk about, but like if LeBron had not disappeared in that Mavs series, which is still one of the crazier things we've ever seen, Wade played well in that series. And if Wade wins a title there and is retiring with four rings and that Heat dynasty won three titles, even if they fall apart against the Spurs, like I wonder whether that puts him in a different tier historically because his numbers grade out pretty favorably against almost any other shooting guards. Yeah, the only tier is him versus Kobe, right? I mean, isn't that sort of... Yeah. You know, so if you're saying he had one more title and he had been maybe the finals MVP in that 2011 series, would that vault him over Kobe? I'm not sure the average person would say that, Uh, but... It would be more of a conversation. It would be a pretty interesting conversation. That's my only point. So um, either way, let's move on to more interesting conversations. But first, Ben, today's podcast is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free, while other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade. Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. Ben, tell me a little bit more about Robinhood. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Open Floor a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at floor.robinhood.com. That's floor.robinhood.com. That's floor.robinhood.com. Go get into it. And with that, Ben, let's get back into the podcast. Kirk says, well, he sent this during Luka Doncic's triple-double against the Warriors this weekend, and he says, tell me more about Luka's ceiling, guys. Is it the Sistine Chapel? So I guess we can have the Luka conversation now. Um, we heard. I from- would love to, because I hear from so many people, Andrew. I mean, I mentioned it before, but like people want a secondhand intervention. Like they're hoping if they reach out to me that I will sort of somehow, uh, I guess, bring you closer to reality or like introduce you to what's happening or try to like you know smack some sense into you or something. I don't know what they're hoping for, uh-huh. but I've been getting a lot of it, and I'm sick of it. Yes, well, and we had a few people quote us on Twitter. I was accused in the emails of hating the city of Dallas. Someone compared me to a flat earther, additionally. So there was <laughs> a lot Europe of chatter. Too. <laughs> yeah. People really think you're anti-Europe, Andrew. I guess so, which, you know, I was on the phone with Yusuf Nurkic for 45 minutes the other week. Like, I've been pushing for Tomas I have a Bosnian friend. <laughs> what? God, this is awful. Um, look, 
<laughs> I realize that some of this is my fault because generally when Luca comes up on the podcast, it's in the middle of another argument and you and I are bickering and screwing around with each other. So I just throw out these little under-explained snippets that sound kind of insane to people. So for you're, the sake- you're trolling people, you know what you're doing. Come on. I'm, no, I'm, I'm trolling you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for clarity's sake, let me just sort of lay out what I actually think, okay? Last week on the podcast, I said that Luca is closer to his ceiling than most people realize. And what I meant there is that I think a lot of people see his numbers this season and just assume that his peak is going to be about 30 to 40% better than what he's doing at 19 years old. And I'm not sure that's a foregone conclusion. And like you and I, mostly me, have sounded like dorks over and over again on this podcast saying that development isn't linear. Um, and to that end, like I don't really understand why it's that hard for people to accept the possibility that the most polished NBA-ready rookie in last year's draft may not have as much room to improve as some of the other guys in his, his class. And, like, I understand if you disagree, and I may look hilariously wrong in five years, but it's not that crazy to look at the player with the highest floor in last year's draft and wonder if he might be closer to his ceiling than some of the other guys like Jaron Jackson Jr. I think, think? That, point, that point's pretty well taken, okay? But I think here would be the counter— the counter would be that maybe you're not the right messenger from that point because you were also telling us that you thought he might struggle in his NBA transition, right? Like, wasn't there some real concerns from you about athleticism? How's it going to work? Is he going to be able to hit the ground running? Like, didn't you have some of those concerns at last year's draft time? Or am I putting words in your mouth? No, I think where my questions always were, I like if you go back to some of the conversations we had leading up to last year's draft, I said, like, there's no doubt that Luca is going to be a good player. I'm just not sure whether he's going to be the superstar that people expect. And I wasn't sure how he would handle his role if he wasn't going to be that guy. Um, but he's been better than I expected. I was always very clear, though, that he had a high floor and there was like no doubt that he was going to be good in the NBA. Right. So if he's been better than you expected and he's been better than you expected before you expected it, right? Like he's mm-hmm. he's hit the ground running a little bit better. Well, that, if you had does- asked me like to predict the rookie of the year, I think I probably would have said Luca or Aiden based on the numbers that they were going to put up. And uh, and Aiden has had put up good numbers. Luca's numbers are just a little bit better. And so he's going to win. But like I, I didn't think he was going to come in and just be like a mess at his rookie season. Right, but I mean, he's averaging twenty-one, seven, and five, or almost six. I mean, that those are incredible numbers for a rookie. And I understand everybody's getting numbers now, so you got to put the asterisk on it. But uh, he has—I mean, he was a borderline, like fringy. If they just took the top twenty-four players, you could argue he could be an all-star this year. Like he definitely hit the ground running in a way that uh, you didn't expect. I thought he was going to be the rookie of the year. I was pretty high on him. But yeah. there's definitely been moments, especially like late in games where he's taken things over, where you just don't expect any rookie to be able to do that, right? There's no question. And also, I think he was a different player the first six weeks of the season than he has been for the rest of the season. The first six weeks, he was shooting lights out. In the clutch, he was like off the charts. And that player is is great. I think his shooting is has kind of come back to earth in some respects and um and there's been a little bit of a reality check and so like to clarify what i actually think here <laughs> is that luca is really good and i'm not here to say he sucks 
But the two takes that I've had since October is first, I said that Luca will end up being closer to Joe Johnson than James Harden. And to me, that still feels reasonably accurate. Like, I feel like Joe Johnson is halfway between Tyreek Evans and James Harden. And that's about where I see Luca landing. And Joe Johnson was also really good. And in the modern era, Joe Johnson would put up crazy good numbers. And that's kind of where I see Luca. That's my read on his game. I just don't know whether he's going to be great. And um, the other thing that I threw out, which was half kind of messing with you, half just having fun, is the idea that Trey Young is just going to be flat out better than Luca over the course of his career. I admit that's more of a classic take, and half of it is just me having fun. But I also do like Trey's offensive ceiling a little bit more. I think he's a better shooter. He's a little bit better at creating easy offense for himself and everybody else. And I just have a gut feeling that he's going to be really special. And on that front, like, I know that any Lucas skepticism makes me sound like a crazy person. But it's also okay to just have a different opinion than, than like, the majority of NBA media without making me... Like, that doesn't make me dumb or xenophobic or, like, I don't hate the city of Dallas... I just think Luca's been a little bit overrated if we're looking at him as the no-brainer choice to be the best player from this year's class of rookies. I don't think it's outrageous to say Trey Young could be a better player long-term. Um, I mean, his his offensive impact, I think he's going to be able to stretch defenses further than Luca can with his shot, and he's a better playmaker, more natural playmaker for his teammates um, than Luca is. So those are big, you know, pluses in his, you know, category. Okay. I think obviously Luca is already a better defensive player and will always be a better defensive player. And I don't think Trey is going to be able to make the defensive improvement that Steph was able to, mostly just because of his body his and because and because Steph worked so hard at it and was in the perfect situation to like demonstrate that improvement and to kind of get positive feedback when he was making progress to like, you know, stick with it. I mean, it took years for Steph to try to, you know, do stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um so, I mean, I don't think it's outrageous to say that about Trey. Yeah. But I think what you're trying to do is get these Lucas stands to meet you in the middle, right? So you're saying, hey, I might have been a little bit too skeptical of him before. He's surpassed my expectations, but there is still reason to be skeptical of him longer term. I think their counter would be, if he's blown away your expectations to this point, why can't he keep doing that? What is it that's holding him back? And would you say it's a body thing? Would you say it's a mentality thing? Would you say it's a team system context fit thing? Uh, the nature of his game thing? Like what has it, you know, what, what are the, which of these factors have you thinking that he can't be a top five player in the league, which is what some people, especially his real diehard true right. believers would argue. I mean, what are those things? Well, so here's what worries me is that he still takes a ton of bad shots in large part because he's not athletic enough to get himself clean looks. And I think that that's going to be something to watch over the next five to 10 years. I don't blame anyone who sees his success in year one and says, all right, this guy is going to be a superstar. All I'm asking is to not call me a fucking idiot for looking at him and saying, <laughs> hey, I don't totally it. see look, it. Look, 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 look. Okay. I'm no disrespect. 
forget about these other people. You're just talking to me right now, okay? okay. We're going to work through this conversation. You're going to lay out exactly <laughs> what it has. It has you concern, you know, these check marks that you want to see if he's going to reach that superstar ceiling and be better than a Joe Johnson. And yeah. everybody out there is going to respect your logic and your thought process, okay? All right. So here's what worries me is he's just he settles for a lot of contested looks. And when you look at his shooting over the course of the season, he has regressed in a lot of key ways and particularly the three-point shooting, like that's an area where he can improve, but a lot of the threes that he's taking are really, really tough shots. And he's the reason he's not James Harden is because James Harden is the only player in NBA history we've seen who can really hit those looks at a reliable clip. And like Steph Curry can too. But if you're saying that that's the way, that's the path for Luka to be a superstar, like, okay, maybe he gets there, but like that's not a guarantee. And... um and beyond that, it's hard for him to create easy offense for himself, um, at least at a superstar level. And I think a lot of it comes down to people not actually watching this dude play. Because if you watch the games, he has a lot of moments where you're like, man, like you really got to work really hard to get yourself a look in the half court. And so that's, that's concerning to me. Okay, so I think uh, I agree with some of that and maybe disagree with a little bit uh, some of the other parts. So first, I think that um, my concerns are, can he demonstrate he is going to be able to make his teammates better on an elite level, right? Uh-huh. I think that he is wired as a scorer, as a play first, or, you know, score first playmaker. That's what he's wanting to do. And if you want to get all the way up to that, you know, top three offense type level, that can't be the only, you know elite tool in your bag. So I think I need to see more uh, development from him in terms of making his teammates better as an offensive weapon. I think second, some of the shot selection issues and the efficiency issues that you're pointing out during his rookie season, I do think it has to do with the talent around him, right? Their roster at this point is definitely worse than it was to start the season. And their structure in terms of like, okay, like, are we going for it? What are we really trying to do here? Like down the stretch, it feels a little bit loosey goosey to me, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, let's just go throw Dirk out there and, you know, do whatever you want, Dirk. <laughs> it's it's very, know. very loosey goosey. I watched the Warriors game this morning and it's like, whoa, okay. So we're just kind of throwing it to Dirk 20 feet from the hoop. Luca's kind of doing whatever he wants. And, and Luca did great in that game. There's no shots at him, but like, yeah. Yeah. So I'm saying let's give him an average collection of talent around him. Let's give him average levels of shooters and maybe even throw in a poor Zingas is his shot selection going to improve? Uh, I mean, is he naturally wired to take dumb shots? I don't think so. I think he has a really good feel for basketball. Uh, does he default to taking bad shots when he doesn't see any other options? I think that is absolutely a legitimate concern. And hopefully with improved talent around him and the addition of another star player, mm-hmm. uh, he winds up being a little bit less reliant on that stuff. Um, I well, also think the, the athleticism issue, though, that's definitely an issue because uh, it is for everybody, uh, you know. But I also think he's really good at using his body, getting to the free throw line, um, understanding how to to work and, and create space, uh, you know, off the dribble. Yep. So I think you might be understa- underselling him a little bit on, on some of those areas. Um, and then defensively too, it's like okay, well, if you're going to be a superstar level guy, we mentioned Steph earlier, the the type of work he put in defensively. Harden's improved a lot defensively too, and some of his defensive numbers have become very impressive. Yeah, Giannis he's great all, guarding in the post. Giannis, all world defender, Embiid, all world defender. So if we're comparing Luca to some of the other guys who are almost like in his age range, so to speak, like the guys who are going to be his targets three years from now, 
those guys are big time two-way impact players, right? So if you're trying to win the title in 2023, you better be doing it both ways because you're going against Giannis, you're going against Embiid. I'm not sure that's going to be Luka, right? Like I still worry more about his physicality or his his uh, athleticism stuff on the defensive end uh, more than I do the offensive end. So yeah, it's not that I'm in agreement that he can't be a superstar. I think he can be a, a superstar player. I think his ceiling to me is higher than his ceiling to you is. But I don't think you just pencil him in as a top five player in this league five years from now. I'm, I don't think it's going to be that clean. Yeah, I think the future I see for him is closer to 15 to 25 than top 15 or top 10. Um, and we'll see. And even that, it's going to piss a lot of people off. But I just I think he's going to be good. I don't know if he's going to be that great. I think if he can hit off the dribble threes close to 40%, like he's going to be amazing. There's no doubt about that. And the best games he's had in the NBA are nights when those shots are falling and then he becomes completely unguardable. Um, the thing that I, as far as the athleticism, some of that, I guess, sounds to people like coded racism or whatever. I, I don't mean, like, he's really good and he's been great using his body around the rim. And I think one of the reasons he has a, a high baseline is because he can get to the line, um, and and being able to do that as a rookie is really really encouraging. But like, you compare him to Dirk, for instance. Dirk was a better athlete than Luca is, and uh, I think a lot of Mavs fans are counting on Luca getting in shape this summer and becoming a better athlete, which is certainly possible. But Dirk was a better athlete, and he also was seven feet tall and could get his shot off against anybody and get easy offense the same way Kevin Durant. You can just book 25 to 30 points for Kevin Durant or Dirk at any point. And um, and Luka's going to have to work harder than that. And he even has to work a little bit harder than someone like Trey Young, which is strange to me because Trey Young is like 5'11". But he Trey has a really good feel for how to create space and get kind of easy looks. The floater... His timing has gotten so much better over the course of the season. And, well, um, Trey is really slippery, and that's just a that's a physique thing too, right? I mean, yeah. he's, he just bounces around the court, and Luca's not gonna. He might roll around the court. He's not bouncing around the court. Uh, the coded racism thing you mentioned. Hey, forget about that. Luca came in and said he was heavy. You know, he, he ate right. too much of his mom's food. He told us that he has lost weight during this season. Guess what? His quickness improved. He needs to lose more. That's the only point. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, it sounds like we mostly agree. And again, I don't think Lucas sucks. So, and also the only other thing I would add is I do for the sake of my friends who are Mavs fans, whether it's Kirk Henderson or Tobo or, uh, Lisa, the, the various people on Mavs internet, Jason Gallagher from the ringer. Like I do really hope that Luca is good. The people who have rubbed me the wrong way are probably the, like, mainstream NBA media who act like every team who passed on Luca made a franchise altering mistake and was just flat out stupid. And that, you know, there were all these takes that like, God, the just most the successful. Suns. Look, ju- just the Suns. Okay. The rest of them, whatever. But the Suns definitely made a franchise altering mistake there. Come on. Well, yeah, I think everybody should have taken Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, but so it goes. And the, the the rookie of the year debate is already getting annoying where did you see Blake Griffin and, and Donovan Mitchell come out and say Trey should be rookie of the year? 
Yeah, I don't really get where where Blake's coming from because he's a Jordan guy. I mean, Donovan, it was just like that was just three stripe for life. I thought. I mean, I thought that was pretty, you know, straightforward kind of Adidas mm. marketing campaign. I didn't make um, that connection. Well, I did because I was kind of hanging out with both of them during draft week last uh, last year. So I was like, oh yeah, wonder where this came from. <laughs> Fancy that. But look, Luke is the rookie of the year. Okay, I I don't think we need to. I understand people stepping up for Trey, appreciating what he's done. Uh, the impact on Atlanta is obvious. He's played much better here the last couple months, but Luca is the rookie of the year. Um, interesting. Okay. I, I think I agree. I will say that Trey's numbers over the last three Andrew. months have been just better. Like his net rating is better. Luca has a negative net rating in Dallas. Trey has, has a positive net rating for a Hawks team that's actually winning and beating good teams. So why are we only looking at one portion of the season for this season end award? Well, I just think, you know. Just because I, Trey was so bad the first couple of months, you don't want to talk about it? Is that it? <laughs> well, Luca's shooting has been every bit as bad over the last couple months. So I don't know. I don't blame anybody who says, look, we're looking to reward the most outstanding rookie the rookie who captured people's imaginations this year, and Trey was that guy. And I, I, I don't blame actual NBA players. Like, it just starts to feel a little too condescending on the internet when players are like, "Yeah, Trey is the rookie of the year," and then you see bloggers like quote tweeting them and lecturing those guys. And it's like, can we have a little bit of humility here? I just, I don't know. The and I guess that's true. This happens in all awards conversations, but I, Look, I the players don't know how to vote. Okay, like we can we can argue that now. Luca's. Uh, right now, he's in a, a 24% three-point shooting month of March. Just for comparison's sake, Trey shot 20% in November. So your point there is that, like, are there lows, kind of similar lows? And, and you may yeah. be onto something. But look, Andrew, I just spent 15 minutes negotiating a peace treaty between you and, and the Luca fans. Is <laughs> not only rude to me, but is disingenuous for you to turn right back around and say Trey should be rookie of the year. Come on, well, man. What I'm saying is what bugs me about these conversations is when everybody talks with all this certainty, I think that we're shortchanging what makes basketball interesting, whether it's Luca's next 10 years versus Trey or throwing Jaron Jackson into the mix. I'm sure we'll do it with James Harden and Giannis. I just, I wish we could acknowledge that like no one is an idiot in these conversations. The players have their perspective. They may be wrong. They may be more limited than some of the medias, but like, I don't know. There just aren't clear, obvious, correct answers and reasonable people can disagree. And I wish I, it, it becomes less fun when everyone is just constantly questioning each other's intelligence or like the motives of people that disagree with them. I hear you. I think it's less fun, though, sometimes when we just force a debate that doesn't have to be a debate. Like, I don't think it's horrible to say Luca's one, Trace two, rookie of the year, period. Like, okay. You know, I don't, I think that the gap there is significantly wider than this Hard and Giannis gap. And uh, I think that sometimes the people who you're pointing to, the blog boys of the world, maybe they overemphasize the importance of the advanced statistical measures when they're comparing players, right? So if like Luca happens to have better win shares and better real plus minus, and, you know, Trey happens to look worse by those metrics, you know, sometimes because of, you know, the defensive impact yeah. that they, they just zone, they only, they only focus on that. Well, I think it and, is important to take a, a wide ranging approach and to zoom out, which is sort of what you're suggesting. But I think that's even when you I zoom mean, out, it's like yeah. he, the real plus minus, first of all, that's just not a very good step. 
stat. And, and I think, you know, that can obscure truth just as often as it illuminates any truth. Um, as far as Trey versus Luca, well, I, I don't we... know. I, I think it's pretty good and it's very revealing on Trey. I mean, <laughs> well, it certainly like, does not do Trey any favors. There's no doubt there. But, but I mean, would you argue with your eye test that Trey's better defender than real plus minus says? Like, I wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> like, uh, the net rating kind of speaks for itself. The, the, the Hawks have been a legitimately decent team over the last couple months, and Trey, they're better when Trey is on the court. So I don't really know. He's well, not a good that defensive also, player. But that says something about who these other players are on their roster, and their roster is not very good, right? So, like, of course they're going to be better with Trey. I think Trey's their best player. So, yeah. I mean, that. Like that can be misleading too. I think what the real plus minus is saying is, hey, we're stripping everything else out. What's this guy's impact offensively and defensively? And his impact defensively matches up with him getting killed night after night. <laughs> well, first of all, Luca's no defensive stalwart, which is a point that you made earlier. But yeah, that's fine with me. As far as the conversation though, like people want to be really, really literal about this and say, Luca has been the best rookie for six months versus Trey being great for four months and arguably better than Luca. And it's like, you know, it's fine if players want to answer this by saying, like, who's the best rookie I saw this year? Trey Young. That's like an acceptable answer to me. I understand media should put more thought into it, but if it, it you can take the award in a number of different directions, and that ultimately makes these conversations more interesting than just saying, well, I pulled up basketball reference here, and Luca grades out in like as superior in seven categories, and he's been at a higher level for seven months. Like, I don't know. Eventually, that just gets old. I hear you, but you can't ignore it, right? Like, let's let's include those data points in the conversation. That's my only point. I feel like that was a pretty balanced conversation. Kept it respectful. I will probably okay. Wait, so gun gun to your head. Who do you vote for for rookie of the year? Oh man, I think Luca. Um, okay, I think Luca, but I also am not going to be out here smugly tweeting at Br Blake Griffin, being like, "Oh, here we go again!" Like the fucking players. It's like you know what? I don't begrudge anybody who says Trey's the best rookie I saw this year. He should win the award. That's totally okay. fine as far as I'm concerned. So, just to, to our official open floor stance right now, it's Giannis for MVP. It's Luca for Rookie of the Year, and it's Andrew Sharp for Twitter Sheriff. Okay, he's he's seeing he's seeing your behavior out there on social media. Everyone, he's watching you, oh, and he does not boy. like it. It just you know, it every now and then rubs me the wrong way. And I, again, I think like a little bit of humility as far as when you're talking to NBA players who have played basketball for thirty years. It's like okay. Um, anyways, Joe says, Ben, your love for the Spurs and their consistent approach to no-nonsense basketball is clear. Is Indiana really that much different than San Antonio, at least from an organizational philosophy standpoint? Um, what do you think, Ben? This is on the heels of your Pacers piece, which I read and enjoyed. Um, do you have any thoughts? Um, well, so first things first. I hate it when anyone compares anybody to the Spurs. I mean, you remember me flipping out on some Raptors fans who tried to say Toronto was the San Antonio of the North last year, right? But I'm not going to flip out on Joe because, number one, he read my Washington Post story, so I appreciate that. There you go. Uh, number two, and more importantly, because Kevin Pritchard is at the helm of the Indiana Pacers. He got his start basically in the Spurs front office after his playing days. So he is a disciple of pop. He is actually, if I was going to say, if anyone is most responsible for brainwashing me into 
the brilliance of the San Antonio Spurs and how they do things, it would probably be Kevin Pritchard uh-huh. uh, back when he was the GM of the Blazers and I was first getting started. Uh, this is probably like 2007, 2008. I mean, he preached culture, culture, culture. I've told you this before, but his book is titled Help the Helper, which just basically says it all about how he views the world and like the importance <laughs> of culture and everybody holding hands and, and doing things in a collective way, right? Uh-huh. So he has never really succeeded completely in implementing that San Antonio model. Like in Portland, it didn't come together because of injuries. In Indiana, they had a situation where Paul George just wasn't Tim Duncan. He didn't want to be the guy there for 15, 20 years, right? And so he has encountered sort of the challenges that San Antonio has mostly navigated around uh, for the last 20 years and only has finally had to start dealing with with Kawhi Leonard and so forth. But his basic premise, which I think is fairly radical by NBA standards right now, it's like, look, we're not going to bend over backwards chasing superstars that we're not going to get in free agency. We're not going to tank to try to go find a superstar in the draft. We're just going to do everything in our power to be really good or at least good every single year. And some of that is going to be because they know they can't get the stars. Some of it's going to be because their owner has never been a guy who's really like tried to spend um, deep into the luxury tax and go crazy with, you know, like forking over all this money. But some of it is just sort of about appealing to what their fan base wants, which is something to go do on a you know a Thursday night and a Saturday night and all that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think they've, they've really prioritized basically respectability over rings or over tanking. It's very different. I mean, look at all these other teams around the league, whether it's Clippers, Lakers, Knicks, uh, Chicago Bulls, even like the Houston Rockets, and the Golden State Warriors. They have basically taken completely the opposite approach of just like trying to hoard superstars, trying to spend money like crazy. If that doesn't work, just tank. And he's really adopted this kind of middle path in between those two poles. Yeah, um, it's it's respectable on its own level. Uh, you know, I think in this, the piece I wrote, I said basically they've taken this moderate approach and it's been moderately successful, right? Like they're sort right. of getting what they're paying for, um, but nothing more and nothing less. And I think ultimately it winds up casting them as the ultimate cute story. And that's the difference between them and the Spurs, right? Uh, The Spurs were doing all of those things, but with the intention of competing for a title every year, with the intention of trying to win 55 plus games every single year, that's what makes them so special. And that's the key difference I see between those two franchises. But I do have a lot of respect for what Indiana is trying to do there. Um, you know, we make fun of some of these franchises that have the market disadvantages. You know, we laugh at the idea of anyone going to sign with the Hornets or the Pistons. Nobody wants to be laughed at, right? Like right. no one wants to, to feel like, hey, we're on the outside looking in and we have no shot here. And Indiana has sort of come to terms with its place in the overall hierarchy and just said, hey, this is our best uh, path forward. We're going to try to do it year in and year out. And it's worked out pretty well for them. I mean, They're above the Celtics right now, and they've held on all season long to that, and that's pretty darn impressive. Yeah, I think they have been really impressive, and and I left out part of Joe's email where he said, I wonder what would have happened to Indiana if they had lucked out drafting Blake Griffin instead of Tyler Hansborough or had the chance to, to draft Carl Towns rather than Miles Turner. There may have been a few potential final windows, finals windows opened up in Indiana over the years, which is... A good kind of distinction to draw with the Spurs is that in addition to doing things really well and, and, and playing things smart in a number of different respects, they have been lucky and they have been able to get some franchise-changing guys all over the map in the draft. Um, and that hasn't happened in Indiana as much. But like I look at Indiana 
And I compare them more to the culture in Miami where like, there's just a lot of people who know what they're doing. And, um, and it's kind of refreshing to see organizations like that because not all organizations are like that. I can, after living around the wizards, like, I don't know, it's, it's, um, it's cool what they've built. I don't think them, I don't think they're very good. I think like they're not going to, I, a lot of people are saying that the Pacers are going to challenge the Celtics. I really don't see it, but, um, but it is cool in its own right. I'm not sure I see it either, but I don't think they're going to fold up. I don't think they're going to roll over. And I think if they had Oladipo, which is obviously the big kind of X factor over their whole season, um, I think that would be a real series. I mean, I think that they, they would push the Celtics in lots of ways that would make Boston really uncomfortable and, and potentially could push them to sort of a breaking point given kind of their shaky chemistry. I agree I'm with, with you. That I, for sure. I, I, I'd still take Boston over Indiana in that series. But the fact that, that that's even a conversation is basically a credit to what they're dealing with because it's not just the Oladipo injury. They've had guys in and out of the lineups all season long. And one thing I asked Pritchard when I talked to him over the weekend or, or I guess last week um, was did the experience in Portland of like losing all these guys to injury, did that help handling the Oladipo thing? And he was like, I hate to say it, but yeah. It's like you already know, like, because he went through it, but Nate McMillan, their coach, already went through it. So these guys, like they've got a doctorate in managing injuries, right? Like they know exactly what to do in terms of, you know, what do you go tell the players? How do you do it? What's the message? Uh, what kind of players do you look to like bring in to uh, fill the hole? And, you know, you saw right on schedule, they go get a Wesley Matthews and, and plug him in. And and he's been giving them some, you know, pretty good minutes here uh, after he was bought out uh, following the trade to New York. So yeah, I just think that they have the blueprint for kind of handling those adverse situations where other organizations, if they lose a star player, it's like, let's just go tank, right? Or like, let's just, or maybe they're just, you know, kind of floundering around like the Wizards, like a great right. example. You, you lose Wall, now what? Well, do we tank? Do we not? We're going to say we're not going to do We're not tanking, but then we're going to trade Otto at the deadline. We're going to run Bradley Beal's minutes up. We're still not going to be winning games. It's just like sort of this, um, you know, this very murky identity and direction. And with the Pacers, because their main leadership guys have been through it, they know exactly what they want to do, and it's showing through in terms of their consistent play on the court. Yeah, um, it is pretty cool. And uh, with that, Ben, um, let's do two more emails real quick, actually. First is from Adam from the UK, who says, I have a small request. The first time my wife heard me listening to Open Floor, her immediate reaction was, one of these guys really sounds like Justin Timberlake. I can't say I agree too strongly, but every time I'm listening in her presence, she persists with comments such as, oh, is that JT talking about basketball again? And why does Justin Timberlake hate Luca? Uh, to be very clear, Justin Timberlake does not hate Luca, but he says, Andrew, in the six months I've been listening, I don't believe I've ever heard you sing. So to put the matter to bed once and for all, could you please shout out Katie and belt out a couple of lines from one of Justin Timberlake's hit songs so we could determine how strong the similarity really is? Um, I refuse to sing any Justin Timberlake songs. I think one of the low points of the podcast has been you rapping, Ben. And so I'm not going to compound that problem with singing here, but I, think I am the listeners flattered. would disagree for sure. <laughs> Yes, well, so I have nothing to offer, but I'm re I'm very flattered by the comparison there from Justin. I'm not really wife. sure. I 
I'm not really sure I know what Justin Timberlake's voice sounds like other than his singing voice. Do you think you sound like him? I don't think so. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I don't like the sound of my own Wait, voice. So you're, you're never like transcribing an interview with like Ernie Grunfeld and you're like, wow. <laughs> Like this number one pop stars interviewing the president of the wizards. Oh wait, that's me. You don't Look, have that situation. If the shoe fits, I'll wear it. You know, I, that Justin Timberlake is a is a step up. A lot of people think I sound like Chris Ryan. Um, I like Chris Ryan's voice, so that's fine too. Um, but yeah, I think Justin Timberlake is is a dream comp for me as far as podcasting yeah, is concerned. I was gonna say you got the this the great good looks of Ron Baker and this felt voice of <laughs> Justin Timberlake. You're killing it yes alice you're so lucky you've got to catch alice (laughs) she has no idea man um and then the last question or really more of a comment from kevin he says while driving home from work on monday morning i legitimately laughed out loud at sharp's suggestion to not put too many eggs in the mueller report basket as always sharp is right about the big things it brings me no joy to be right about that but um but yes i I will say Open Floor successfully jinxed the Mueller report into existence last week. First of all, uh, I now understand how you feel when everybody emails in about the greatest ability being availability and you just roll your eyes and groan. The idea that you've got people out there who think you're actually right about the big things, as always, just sickens me to my stomach. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's my only comment, actually. That's all I've got. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence at this point. That's all I'll say. And by the way, to close things out here, openfloormail at gmail.com is now getting complaints about your LinkedIn emails. (laughs) (laughs) I told you, right on schedule. I got to get back to to sorting through all these, Andrew. Uh, But go ahead, email us. Real questions, not LinkedIn comments to openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Andrew, sometime this week, I'll put up the lantern on my Instagram. That's at ben.golliver check it out there's gonna be a great question we want everybody's answers to that it'll be so interactive uh, and really fun uh andrew we're also on apple Podcasts. you can find our page by searching for open floor that's two words scroll down there's a section that says rate and review please tap five stars and leave us some kind words we really really appreciate it we're also on the world famous radio.com slash open floor andrew until later this week After I've checked a few connections or a few hundred, (laughs) I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy.